Many of you have heard me talk about the subject that I've been talking on spirit, soul, and body, but I've had a couple of people, I've had people that have uh, traveled with me that have heard this dozens of times and come up and say, man, I saw something I've never seen before. You know what? You don't ever get all of this. I've been ministering on this for 40 years and I still get new stuff. So um, anyway, this is just really important that you let all of this soak in. You know, one of the things that impressed me, uh, our people over in Russia that are doing our Bible college and the people in Uganda, both of them have told me that they just use this spirit, soul, and body kind of like the foundation of everything. And they go through and teach the curriculum. And any time a person has a question and says, well, I don't understand this, what they do is go back to spirit, soul, and body and they teach it again. And they say they teach this three or four times throughout the school year. And when I was in Russia just the last couple of weeks, those people were fired up and turned on and had a revelation of the word. And you know what? I'm not sure that that wouldn't be a good thing for us to do in Colorado, except we just got so much curriculum, it's hard to go through. But I mean, this really is foundational. You've got to constantly be coming back and relating things to this. So anyway, I've been talking about how it's in your spirit that you got changed. And many people make the mistake of looking for the change in the Christian life in the external. And of course, ultimately, it will work its way out into your actions and attitude. But the change is instantaneous in your spirit. It's in your spirit that you became a new person. And you were created in righteousness and true holiness as Jesus is. That's the way you are right now, not the way you're going to be. And everything that you will ever receive from God comes through the Spirit. It doesn't come external, through the flesh, and then work its way down into the Spirit. But it comes through the Spirit and works its way out. And so you've got to be spiritually minded. You've got to start seeing who you are in Christ. In Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, that's the way he's going to be. If you start thinking on who you are in Christ and that you're in right standing and that God loves you and God's not imputing sin unto you, I guarantee you it will just change your actions. It will change your emotions. It will change the way that you relate to God, the way you relate to people. It changes everything. And then last night I was specifically emphasizing, some people say, well, I can see that when I got born again, I was created this way. Ephesians 4, 24, I was created in righteousness and true holiness But I've sinned since then. And most Christians believe that every time you sin, it's a new offense against God. It's got to be repented of. It's got to be put under the blood. And if you don't repent, well, then there are consequences from God. And the ultra-Pentecostals believe that that consequence is you lose your salvation. You're born again, 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 again. Every many times you sin, you're saved, lost, saved, lost, saved, lost every time. And if you were to die before you get that sin confessed, you'd go to hell. Other people believe a similar type of thing, just lesser consequence that you don't lose your salvation. You just lose all the benefits of God. God won't fellowship with you. God won't answer your prayer. You can't have joy. You can't have peace. That's like having the same stick, just an opposite end of the same stick. It's the same thing. God is still imputing sin unto you. And this comes from an Old Testament law mentality because under the Old Testament law, sin could never be atoned for. All it was was covered. It was symbolic. And so you constantly were offering a sacrifice. Every time you sinned, you had to offer a sacrifice. But in Hebrews chapter 9, 10, and 12, we went through those verses last night. The scripture makes it very clear that you have been sanctified and perfected forever. Forever. Hebrews 9, 12, you've received eternal redemption. Hebrews 9, 15, eternal inheritance. You have one sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 10, 2, there should be no more conscience of sin. Hebrews 10, 10, through the one offering of Jesus, we have been sanctified once for all. Verse 14, if you've been sanctified, you have been perfected forever. Hebrews 12, 23 says that it's the spirits of just men who were made perfect. So we went through all of these scriptures to show that you were forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, and even future sins. Sin has been wiped out. God is not mad at you and God is not relating to you based on your amount of sin or lack thereof. It all is through the spirit. John four twenty four says 
Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth because he is a spirit. So we have to come before God based on what has happened in our spirit. And in your spirit, you have been sanctified and perfected forever. If you're coming before God thinking about, oh God, I'm such a failure. How could you love me? You aren't in spirit. You're in the flesh. You're in the external. Amen. Boy, y'all are looking at me just... I've already taught on all of that. I'd love to go back and teach it again. I think we need that taught again. But anyway, I'm going to move on today. And, uh, you know, if that still sounds abnormal to you, if that sounds strange, I've used scriptures for all of this. I just honestly don't know how people get around this. But with most people, really, scripture is not the dominant influence in their life. They go by how they've been trained and what tradition says. And scripture just has very little to do with what they believe. Man, it needs to change. It needs to get to where God's word is true and every man a liar. So anyway, I've already talked about all of that. What I want to do today is answer some questions. If you've listened to what I've said, because of the traditions of man, because of the way we've been taught, there are some questions that always come up. And one of them here is about 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. This verse says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so people take this verse and they say, Well, that right there says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us. This means that you've got to get every sin confessed. And so right then, they go back in to the Old Testament way of viewing things that our sins haven't been forgiven past, present, and future. There is an eternal redemption and eternal inheritance and it puts them back into this thing that we are in and out of God's grace and favor every time we sin. Let me make a couple of comments. First of all, uh, look, look at some things, what it doesn't say. If this is saying that you have to confess every sin before you receive forgiveness, well then in the first place, it would be impossible for you to ever do that. Because sin isn't only the things that you do that are direct transgressions against the word of God, but the Bible says to him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. I think that's James chapter 4 verse 17. And so if you know that you're supposed to be studying the word, that you're supposed to be praying, that you're supposed to love your wife as Christ loved the church, that you're supposed to reverence your husband the way that the church reverences Christ. If you know, according to Philippians chapter 2, to let other, each esteem others better than themselves. How many of us always esteem other people more than we esteem ourselves? How many of us love our, love our neighbor as we love ourselves? If you start looking at what the Bible calls sin, then there, it's impossible for you to have every sin confessed. It's just physically impossible. Some of you are selfish and don't even realize it. Some of you treat your wife and your husband wrong and you don't even think about it. And yet it's sin according to what the scripture says. If you had to have every sin confessed, then the only if that's what you had to do to stay in relationship with God, and if you had an unconfessed sin, you die and go to hell, well then the moment you get born again, I'd just kill you. I might go to hell, but that's the only way you would ever get to heaven because you cannot keep every single sin confessed. It is impractical. Also, here's another revelation. The church basically has said when you come to the Lord, confess your sins and ask Jesus to forgive you. The Bible doesn't say to do that. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says... If you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That doesn't tell you to confess your sins. It tells you to confess Jesus as your Savior. In Acts chapter 16, around verse 30 or 31, 32, it says uh, the Philippian jailer came in and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe. On the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved in your house. They didn't say confess your sins, ask God to forgive you. The church has basically said that you have to confess and ask God to forgive you. The truth is, and I, t- I taught this last night, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 says that he is the propitiation 
That means the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus died for the sins of all of the world. The unbelievers have had their sins paid for. Everybody's sins have been paid for. If a person goes to hell, they don't go to hell for their individual sins. They go to hell for the rejection of Jesus who paid for their sins. And the rejection of Jesus is infinitely worse than the individual sins that we commit. It's all about Jesus. It's all about whether or not Jesus is your Lord. So the scripture doesn't tell you to confess your sins. It tells you to confess Jesus and your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And so this scripture, let me say it this way. I've studied the word a lot. I don't know how much, but I've studied the word a lot, more than a lot of people. And I honestly cannot find another New Testament scripture that tells you that you have to confess your sins in order to be forgiven. The only other scripture I can think of where it talks about confessing your sins is over in James chapter 5 when it says, if you're sick, call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will uh, save the sick. And it says you confess your sins one to another. And that's talking about that if you have strife, strife is an inroad of the devil into your life. And so you need to close that door if you're wanting to be healed. And so it's talking about confessing your sins one to another. But I don't think, I can't think of another scripture that tells you to confess your sins in order to be born again. So here's the reason I bring that up. This is the only scripture that I'm aware of in the New Testament that presents this. In Acts, Paul told them, believe on the Lord Jesus. Paul said in Romans, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Of course, you could go through examples of when the disciples saw Jesus and Thomas fell down and says, my Lord and my God. And he was saved because he confessed Jesus as his Lord. He never did ask forgiveness for his sins. Sins have already been dealt with. That's not the issue. It's a matter of, are you going to make Jesus your Lord? And that's what the scriptures present. So... This is probably one of the most known scriptures in the Bible because of the way it's been applied and used. And let me just say this, that it is not a good interpretation of scripture to take a single instance in the New Testament and make one of the major doctrines that so many things hang on. That's just not a scriptural interpretation. Jesus even said, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. I can take, I can take hundreds of scriptures that establish the fact that you've got eternal redemption, eternal inheritance, one sacrifice for sins for all time. You've been sanctified and perfected forever and on and on we can go. There's lots of scriptures that say all of that. So anyway, I'm just saying that the emphasis on 1 John 1, 9 is not justified the way that it's been taught and they base many, many doctrines on this. That's not a good, sound biblical interpretation. And anyway, I could spend hours talking about this, but let, in a nutshell, here's what I believe 1 John 1, 9 is talking about. Even though your spirit is sanctified and perfected forever and sealed with the Holy Spirit so that if you sin, that sin enters into your body and into your soul, and it gives Satan an inroad into those parts, but it doesn't penetrate the seal. You are still sanctified and perfected forever. God does not impute that sin unto you. And so all of that's true. But what do you do if you've been living in sin and you gave Satan inroad into your physical flesh? How do you stop this? How do you change? Well, Romans chapter 6 says to him, I mean, uh, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey his servants ye are, to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. When you yield yourself to sin, you are yielding yourself to Satan, who is the author of that sin, and he is going to have legal rights into your body. You know, I have prayed with people before who have been out just totally sinning. Doing things wrong. They know that they're wrong. And then they get sick or something happens and they want to come and ask me to pray for them. And it's not that God doesn't love them and God wants to heal them. But what's the point when you chase the devil out the back door and leave the front door and the side doors and all the windows open and and a welcome sign on the front door and just allow the devil back in? 
And I've actually told people before, I said, I'm not going to pray for you until you quit doing what you're doing. It's not because God doesn't love them and won't heal them, but it's just that Satan will go out and then come back seven times worse with seven other spirits worse than himself. You need to shut the inroads of Satan into your life. So how do you do that? I believe that that's what 1 John 1, 9 is, that if you confess it, and the word confess here means to say the same thing. For instance, God said that you only have one wife, that you stay faithful to your mate, that you don't commit adultery. That's what God says. That's his opinion. Our world today says, oh, you can have as many as you want. Let's have sex before marriage. It doesn't matter. That's the opinion of the world. And there's Christians that get into that same attitude and they go out here and then they come up with a sexually transmitted disease. Let's say they got AIDS and yet they're still living in sexual impurity and stuff like that. And they want to come and ask me to pray for them. God can heal them. I've seen people healed who are living in sin. I am not saying that God won't, that you have to be perfect to be healed. If you did, nobody would ever get healed. We all have different failures and problems in our life. But I'm talking about a person who's just flaunting it in the face of God and saying, oh, God says that you're supposed to wait until marriage to have sex. But you know what? That's not what the world says. That's not what my friends are doing. And I'm just shacking up with this person. You're out there living in sin and then you come down with AIDS. I'm going to tell you that, you know what? You need to confess that. You need to say the same thing that God says. You need to quit saying that living a sexually impure life is okay. You need to stop that and you need to come back into agreement with God or you're just short-circuiting your own faith. There's no point in it. So I would tell that person that you need to confess that is sin. Not for the purpose of getting your spirit born again. If they are truly born again, then their spirit is still pure and holy in the sight of God, but you are just giving Satan big time inroad into your life. So here's what I believe 1 John 1, 9 is for. It's if for the Christian... And if I had time, you could spend a lot more time than I'm going to do this morning. But it, the context shows this is talking to a Christian. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things have I written unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's talking to Christians. If you have allowed the devil to come in, he's got a legal right to stay there and to oppress you because you've yielded to him and you've made him, you've given him power and authority in your life. How do you stop that? You turn and confess that I was wrong. God's right. God, I submit myself to you. And then the forgiveness that is already in your spirit and the holiness and the purity that you have in your born again spirit now comes out through your soul and through your body and cleanses you of all of this unrighteousness. This is a scripture for getting Satan out of your life after you have legally given him inroad into there. And I believe that you need to do it. When I mess up, I confess it as sin. But I am not doing it for the purpose of my eternal redemption. I am eternally redeemed. I worship God in spirit and in truth. I am not going to let that sin separate me and go back to where I have to be born again again. But I do need to deal with that sin so that Satan no longer has legal access into my life. For, there's so many things I could say about this, but James chapter 3, verse 16 says, But where envy and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. First John chap, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I forget the exact verse, somewhere in 1 Corinthians 14, it says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. So if God isn't the author of confusion, Satan is the author of confusion. And Again, James 3.16 says, but where envy and strife is, there is confusion. There is the devil and every evil work. I have people come to me all the time. They just, they can't understand why they aren't healed. They confess the word. They've prayed. They've had people anoint them with oil. They know what the scriptures say and they are standing on healing and they just can't understand why they're healed. And then I watch them and I actually, one time in Corpus Christi, Texas, this is back when it was just Jamie and me, and Jamie would get up and lead the praise and worship, and I'd run the sound system, and then she would come back and run the sound system, and I'd get up and preach, and I was sitting at the back running the sound, and Jamie was leading praise and worship, and there was a woman there 
that was just praising God and had her hands up and she was wearing a skirt that was so short that her little kid couldn't even hardly reach the skirt and was trying to grab it. Mommy, mommy, mommy. And anyway, this, this woman was worshiping God and she just turned around. She was right in front of me and didn't know who I was. She just thought I was a sound guy. And she just turned around and I mean slapped her kid right across the face and said, shut up, I'm praising God. And then she went back, oh, praise. And this woman was asking me to pray for her that she could be healed. And she just couldn't understand why she can't be healed. Envy and strife opens up a door to every evil work. There are people that are saying, oh God, I just don't understand why I'm not healed. I've, I've stood on it. And yet you fight like cats and dogs. You scream and yell at people. I was at a woman's house one time and I was staying in their home. And I heard her yell at her son. You slob, get up here and make your bed. You never, and she just blasted him and yelled at him. You could hear it all throughout the house. And you know what? I'd come down to breakfast and I always make my bed if I stay with somebody, but I hadn't made it yet. And uh, she was talking to me over breakfast about, I just don't understand why things aren't working and why my son's going this way. And I said, you know what? Talk to me the way you talk to your son. Yell at me and say, you slob, why did you come down to breakfast and didn't make your bed? And I said, say the things to me that you said to your son and see how we get along. And she said, oh, well, that's my son. I said, you know what? You ought to treat your son better than you treat a stranger who's staying in your house. And there's a lot of people that have just grown up with levels of strife. And they, oh, well, that's, you know, it's our family. That's the way we talk. Well, you're talking wrong. And you know what? If you're trying to get healed, you need to shut that door to strife because where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. Now, does that keep God from healing you? No. But you know what? It'll keep you from being healed. It's not God who's not giving, but here's the Lord extending healing and there's the devil just taking it and taking it away from you because you're yielding to him through strife, through bitterness, through hatred. So you know what? You do need to live holy. And that's the reason over in James chapter five, if anybody's sick, you need to confess your faults one to another and pray one for another. That's the reason it's said to confess your faults is you need to get strife and bitterness and things out of your heart. It's an inroad of Satan. I am not telling us that we don't live in sin. Or, did I say that right? I'm not telling you to go live in sin. I'm not telling you that it's just okay to live in sin, but I'm saying that God is a spirit and God looks at you in the spirit and God is not imputing sin unto you. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Right after the verse that we started with, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who hath, past tense, reconciled us. The word reconciled means to make friendly again or to bring into harmony. He has reconciled us unto himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that's old English for saying, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, making friendly, bringing back into harmony the world unto himself. How did he do this? The next phrase says, not imputing their trespasses unto them. This is how God reconciled us, made us friendly, brought us into relationship. He didn't impute our sins unto us. The word impute is an accounting term. It means to put on the books or to record. He just basically forgave our sins. He just blotted them out. They aren't even recorded. God's not keeping track of your sins. You know, really, probably one of the best illustrations that we could have today is for you to take a credit card. And you know what? When you give a credit card, you are not paying for the uh, product that you're getting or the, the uh, materials that you're getting. What you're doing is giving them information that allows them to impute that sale to the credit card company. And then the credit card company turns around and imputes it to you and sends you a bill. If you think you've paid for it because you gave them your credit card, well, then just don't pay the bill when the credit card company sends it and see how they treat you. You haven't paid for it until you pay that bill. So when you give them a credit card, what they're doing is imputing this unto you. 
it would be what the Lord is describing here, the way he reconciled us unto himself, he didn't impute our sins unto us. That would be like you go up and say, oh God, I've committed this and I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. And he says, it's okay. I'm not going to impute it. I'm not going to hold it against you. It's just, you know, you, you take all this stuff free, no payment. He didn't record it against you. You know, one time we held a meeting over here in, um, in Arlington, Texas, and I used a credit card to pay for it. It was like $3,500 for this meeting room and stuff. And six months later, we still hadn't got the bill. And so finally, I called them up and I told them, I said, something must be wrong because we, we charged this room and yet we've never got a charge. It turned out that the lady who handled our account got fired right after we were there and she just never imputed it. She never recorded it. And so basically, we didn't have that charge. And when I told them, it was American Express. You know, you got to pay that within 30 days. And so I told them it was six months after the deal and all of a sudden they imputed it unto us. And because I didn't have the $3,500 in hand within that day, we didn't send it. They canceled my American Express because I didn't pay up. I could have gotten by without paying it if I hadn't have been honest telling them, but they canceled it. I've never gotten an American Express. Well, I guess we did because one partner wouldn't give unless we got American Express. But I went 10 years without getting another American Express just in protest. But anyway, what I'm saying is, see, that's imputing. It would be like you going up to buy something and you start to give them your credit card and all of a sudden Jesus steps in and says, put that on my account. And he just takes all of the charges that were against you and he puts it on his account. And you know what? If he did that, then you shouldn't get a statement. It shouldn't show there was any activity on your card. You shouldn't get any fee. There shouldn't be a handling fee. There shouldn't be a minimal payment. If Jesus steps in and gives his card and pays for your debt, it shouldn't even be reflected on your statement. But there's a lot of Christians that say, oh yeah, Jesus paid my, my bill, but you still bear a sin consciousness. You still feel guilt. You still feel shame. You feel like you have to suffer somewhat for it. That's wrong. Jesus didn't just step in and pay one monthly payment and then you got to keep it up and try and keep current from now on. He just paid the whole thing off, amen. You're debt free. Your debt has been paid. This is the way that he reconciled us unto God was he did not impute our trespasses unto us and he has committed unto us this word of reconciliation. We're supposed to be telling the world that Jesus has paid for your sins. And then he says in verse 20, now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he, God the Father, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took all of our sin and put it on his account and then he put all of his righteousness and put it on our account. You not only had your sin paid for, but you were injected or infused with all of the righteousness of God. In your spirit, you are as righteous and holy and pure as Jesus is because Jesus has become your righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And brothers and sisters, I just can't tell you how, how many times I talk to people that they don't know it, but this is their problem. They are looking at what they have done. They have a sin consciousness, an unworthiness because they know that they don't deserve it and they aren't approaching God on the basis of who they are in the spirit. They're coming before God with the awareness of, oh God, I've failed you. I've done this, this, and this. And they think that God is looking on the external. He's looking at their actions, that God is as disappointed with them as they are. And because of that, they just don't enjoy the relationship with God. They don't have any confidence that their requests are going to be answered because look what I've done. You're looking on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart and he sees you in the spirit. And in the spirit, you are a completely righteous and holy person sealed by the Holy Spirit and that never changes. That's nearly too good to be true news. 
Let's turn back over to Hebrews chapter 10 and let me answer another question. You know, I really hate to even bring these things up. If it wasn't for religion, I wouldn't even be teaching this. Because I'd rather just go ahead and keep talking about the goodness of God and what he's done. But we've got so much religion. We've been baptized in religion that I know these questions are going to come up and I'd rather answer them than let you figure it out on your own. So here in Hebrews chapter 10, remember verse 14, it says, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Wherefore, the Holy Ghost also is a witness unto us, for after that he had said before, and this is a quotation, I believe it's from uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their Minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. There isn't any more offering for sin. There's just once for all, one sin for all. You were forgiven once and for all. There is no more offering for sin. In verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus... You know, I recently in, in Boston taught five messages on these couple of verses. Man, there's a lot here. I just hadn't got time to expound on this. But again, the symbolism, he's writing to Jews, a Jewish mindset who had these steps and stages you had to go through to reach God. And the Holy of Holies was separated by this veil. And this veil was so strong. Josephus, the first century historian, wrote that it was... Uh, thick veil interwoven with strands of gold thread through it so that a team of horses couldn't pull that veil apart. And it was over 20 feet tall. And yet when Jesus died, the veil was rent in two from the top to the bottom. Even if somehow men had decided to come up with some way to tear the veil, they would have had to start at the bottom. You couldn't get up 20 feet and start tearing it from up there. The fact that it was written from the top to the bottom shows that it was God. He broke the separation that separated us from the presence of God. And now the way to God is open without this sin consciousness and this constant uh, flowing of blood and all of the symbolism that the Old Testament went through because Jesus has now reconciled us unto God. He's not imputing our sins unto us. So this is what this is drawing on. It says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, not by the blood of goats and calves, by a new and living way. Talking about it's different than the way it was done under the Old Testament. And the very fact that this is a new way means that the old way is now Passe, it's not supposed to be used anymore. We need to quit approaching God as if every time we sin, we've somehow or another lost our right standing with God, whether total or partial. All of our sin has been dealt with. You are now the righteousness of God. So we have a new and living way that he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. This veil symbolized the flesh of Jesus. Nobody could approach into the presence of God without going through Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. His body was broken for us, and now there is nothing separating you from God. In the old covenant, there were these cherubims that killed you if you entered in. Now, if an angel stood between you and God, you could rebuke him. If an angel preaches any other gospel unto you than that which I'm preaching, rebuke him. Let him be accursed. Tell that angel, you have no right to keep me from entering into the presence of God because you have been sanctified and perfected forever. Man, that's awesome. And uh, in verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Again, I can stay on every one of these words. Let us draw near with a true heart. Full assurance of faith. So few Christians have that kind of an attitude. Most of us are so fearful of God because of our own sin consciousness. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Remember that the Old Testament couldn't purify a person's conscience. It was only symbolic. And sad to say, most New Testament Christians haven't had their conscience purged either. We have a sin consciousness that God doesn't intend. And many of us are living separated from God with a sense of unworthiness that we shouldn't have. 
So we have to sprinkle our hearts from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Again, this is one of those things I hate to even bring up. What this is doing, it's just been telling you for two or three chapters here that there's one sacrifice. You're sanctified. You're perfected forever. Awesome. Praise God. And if you sin willfully, there isn't anything else to do. There isn't another atonement. You can't get it back under the blood. But religion is taking this and the next verse says, but there's a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. And uh, let me just bring this up and I haven't got time to deal with this properly. I'm probably not going to satisfy anybody with the short amount of time I have to deal with this. But, um, you know, I was raised a Baptist. Baptist, it's once saved, always saved. And regardless of what you do, it's impossible to lose your salvation, to renounce your salvation or anything. Uh, The Pentecostals as a whole, there's variations, but as a whole, the Pentecostals believe, no, you do lose your salvation and basically for any reason. If you have any unconfessed sin in your life, you die and go to hell if you didn't get that sin confessed. So uh, Pentecostals as a whole believe in save, lost, save, lost, save, lost, born again, 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 every time you sin and stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I don't believe it's either one of those. I don't believe you can sin your salvation away because there is no more sacrifice for sin. All of your sins have been dealt with. You can't sin your salvation away. If you think that you could sin your salvation, then you're going to have to start categorizing sin and make acceptable sins and unacceptable sins. You know, there's a guy in Colorado Springs who preaches that if you go 56 miles an hour in a 55 mile an hour zone, you broke the law because the Bible says that you should obey the laws of the land, Romans chapter 13. And if you go 56 in a 55 mile an hour zone and have a car wreck, you die and go to hell. Doesn't matter if you've been born again for 30 or 40 years. There's a lot of you think, no way. You know why? Because you go 56 in a 55 mile an hour zone. You think, oh, that one's acceptable. But you know, the Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 10, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. In the sight of God, there aren't good sins. There aren't acceptable sins. Sin is sin. If you go 56 miles an hour as far as breaking the law, that is breaking the law just as much as committing adultery is breaking the law. There are probably some of you sitting here thinking, well, I believe if you committed adultery and died in a car wreck on your way home, you'd go to hell. But you don't believe if you go 56 miles an hour and have a car wreck, you'd die and go to hell. See, you have to start categorizing sin and saying acceptable sins, unacceptable sins. But the Bible says sin is sin. If you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. James chapter 2 verse 10. So what is this talking about? I don't believe you can sin your salvation away because all of your sin has been dealt with. But you aren't forced to be saved. You aren't forced to stay saved. You know, the scriptures that I was always brought up with that guaranteed that you could not ever lose your salvation. And I do agree, you can't lose it. Like you misplace your keys or you lost your glass. I want it, but I don't remember where it is. (laughs) You can't lose salvation. You can't send it away. But you know the scriptures like John chapter 10, my father is greater than I and no man can pluck you out of my father's hands. I agree with that. Nothing can take me out of that. Romans chapter 8, what can separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or sword or any of these things, nothing is able to separate us. Nobody can pluck me out of God's hand. But that doesn't say that God's going to force you to stay in there. You had to choose God as salvation. I believe you have to choose to stay saved. It's not based on your holiness. It's not based on your goodness. But you do have a free choice. You weren't forced to be saved. You have to choose to stay saved. 
Over in, I believe it's 1 Peter where it says that you've been begotten unto an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven that fades not away. That's another scripture I used to quote all the time. And you know what? It's good. It's an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, fades not away. But the next verse says, who are kept by faith unto salvation. You do have to maintain faith. You can't just quit believing God. I don't believe you can send your salvation away, but I do believe that you can renounce your salvation. And that's the reason that Hebrews chapter 6 says what it says. Let's look at this. I'm going to come back to Hebrews chapter 10. But Hebrews chapter 6, in verse 4, it says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, first of all, if you are of the Pentecostal persuasion that every time you sin, you lose your salvation, if you believe that, if it ever happens, this verse makes it clear, you can never be renewed unto repentance. You can't crucify Jesus a second time. So if you believe that you lose your salvation when you sin, then you're damned. And there is no such thing as as being born again again. I just don't know how people deal with this. This is what it's saying. You can't be born again again. You can't lose your salvation and come back into relationship. If you believe you lose your salvation because of sin, then this scripture has condemned you to hell with no possibility of ever receiving repentance. So therefore I reject that you lose your salvation because of some sin. You can't do it. On the other hand, some people say, well, this is proof that you once saved, always saved. This is talking about the impossibility of it. But again, you have to really, you have to really struggle to say that this is a hypothetical case. If you read it in his context, he's warning the people. He's saying, let's go on, let's leave these things and go on under perfection because if a person falls away, it's impossible to renew them again under repentance. I believe that this is talking about a person can renounce their salvation. You can't send it away. You have to reject it. And notice there's five qualifications put on this. It says, first of all, you have to have been enlightened. John 6, says, No man can come unto the Father except the Holy Spirit draw him. The Holy Spirit has to quicken you. People who come to the Lord because they were raised in church and they've never thought about it and they've never had the Holy Spirit influence them, and they just call themselves Christians in name only, that's not being truly born again. To be born again, the Holy Spirit has to draw you and quicken you. No man can come unto the Father except the Holy Spirit draw him. So that's what it's talking about, about being enlightened. And the second thing, it says you have to have tasted of the heavenly gift, which I believe is talking about being born again. You have to have been truly born again. The third thing, you have to have been partaker of the Holy Ghost. That's talking about being baptized in the Holy Ghost, which I believe is kind of the entry level, the doorway into the things of the Spirit. And then in verse 5, it says, and if tasted the good Word of God. This is talking about a person that the Word of God isn't just something that they've heard and they've memorized the Scripture, but God has spoken to them. They have started receiving revelation of the Word. They're maturing as a Christian. This is describing maturity. Somebody who's been in the Word of God and God is speaking to them and they know the Word not just by you know, repetition, but they know it in their heart. It's revelation to them. And the next thing it says, and the powers of the world to come. This is talking about a person who is matured to the point that they're flowing in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The power of God, the gift of miracles, the gifts of healing are flowing through them. So what this is doing is describing maturity. This is saying that an immature Christian can't do this. An immature Christian can't renounce his faith in the Lord because he doesn't know what he's doing. The Apostle Paul said that he blasphemed the Holy Ghost, which Jesus said, if you blaspheme the Holy Ghost, there is no repentance in this life nor in the one to come. And yet Paul said, I blaspheme the Holy Ghost, but I received forgiveness because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. You have to be mature enough to know what you're doing. You know, when I was a little kid living over here in Arlington, Texas, I got upset with my parents for something. I forgot what it is now, but 
I got mad and I told him I didn't want to be a womack and I ran away from home. And I remember I wasn't even out of sight of my house before I got to thinking, where am I going? And what am I going to eat tonight? And it's going to get cold tonight. And, what am I, and I knew I had made a wrong decision before I got out of the eyesight of my house. And my brother was coming after me, but I was too proud to humble myself and repent and come home. So I intentionally got caught in the barbed wire fence so that he could catch up with me. And he drugged me back home. And man, I was sure glad to get back home. You know what? If they would have caught me as a four or five year old kid and I said, I don't want to be a woman. They would have sided with my parents because I wasn't mature enough. I didn't know what I was doing and they wouldn't have let me leave home and renounce my family and do things like that. But now I'm 59 years old and you know what? If I wanted to change my name and put a legal separation between me and my family, I could do it. The law would stand on my side because I'm considered an adult. Well, God looks at us and there are people who just off of the, you know, offhand have gotten upset and thought, man, this Christianity isn't working and they say something and say, I renounce my salvation. But God, but you haven't fulfilled this. You aren't mature. And God didn't impute it. He didn't hold it against you. And here's one of the ways that you can tell. Over in Romans chapter 1, over there it talks about because they did not like to retain God in their mind. And if you read those verses, it's talking about people who just progressive steps away from God. And the final step It says, because they didn't like to retain God in their mind, he gave them over to a reprobate mind to work all uncleanliness, etc. And this goes back to that scripture, John 6, 44, that you can't come unto the Lord on your own. You have to be drawn by the Holy Spirit. What this is saying is God just took all conviction away from them. He no longer is dealing with them. He's forsaken them. And I tell you what, man without the drawing, convicting power of the Holy Spirit is reprobate, is evil, is vile. If there isn't any influence of God on your heart, man, I tell you, you turn out to be a bad dude. Amen? And so here's my point. If you're saying, well, man, I, I was born again, baptized in the Holy Spirit, and I said, God, I renounce you, and I went out and lived in sin. Are you saying that I'm reprobate? Well, if you're sorry about it, No. Because that shows that the Holy Spirit is still dealing with you and the Holy Spirit is still drawing you and you still desire the things of God. If you want to be saved, if you long to know God, well then the Holy Spirit is still dealing with you. You aren't reprobate yet. So that proves that God didn't hold you accountable. And that wasn't imputed unto you. But I bring all of this up to say that When I teach on that all of your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, well, then there's all these religious questions that come up about, well, what about if you sin? Well, you're still sanctified and perfected. Well, what about the scripture in Hebrews chapter 10? Let's go back and look at this. Hebrews chapter 10, if we sin willfully, after that we've received knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Verse 27, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite under the spirit of grace. If you really stop and think about this, this is describing somebody who is just hateful towards God. This isn't talking about a person who failed. This isn't talking about a person who slipped. This isn't talking about a person who promised God, I'm not going to, you know, uh, dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do anymore. And yet you find out you slipped and went into it again. This is talking about a person who is in total rebellion towards God. And again, it would have to fit with Hebrews chapter six. You would have to be mature enough to meet those qualifications. It says, he that despised Moses' law and it trodden underfoot the Son of God. How many of you that you don't study your Bible, you get to watch in the football game and when you you know that God's leading you to pray, that's sin. But does that mean that you have just trodden underfoot the Son of God and you count the blood of the covenant, you count the blood of Jesus unholy and that you don't care about it and you... Speak about the blood of Jesus the same way you'd talk about anybody else's blood? That's not what you're doing. 
And then it says, and hath done despite unto the spirit of grace. The word despite means intent to hurt, hatred. This is describing a person who is reprobate, apostate, a person who has renounced God and hates God. And again, it would have to fulfill the requirements of Hebrews chapter 6. This is describing that a person can renounce your faith. So I boil all this down by saying that once saved, always saved, as long as you want to be. Amen. I'm not in fear about my salvation. I'm saved and I'm going to stay saved and I'm not worried about losing my salvation. You can't lose salvation. The only way you can get rid of it is to renounce it. Knowing what you're doing. Hating God. I believe it's possible to renounce your salvation, but you can't lose it. I am saved and I'm once saved, always saved because I want to be saved. But I'm not going to go flirt with sin. I'm not going to start living in sin because sin hardens your heart. And I believe that, I believe I have fulfilled the requirements of Hebrews chapter 6. And if I was to start living in sin, you know what? God is a spirit and God is looking at me in my spirit and God would still love me and God would bless me. But if I start living in sin, if I wanted, if I went and started living in adultery and lying and stealing money and drinking and carousing and doing whatever... You know what? I'd be violating my conscience. I'd be hardening my heart towards God layer after layer after layer of insensitivity and sometime Satan would try everything he could to draw me to a place of total rejection of God. I believe it's possible. It's not probable and because I am serving God and seeking God, I'm not worried about it and it doesn't make me afraid. But you know what? I'm not going to even move in that direction. I'm staying as far away from that as I possibly can. But I believe you can renounce your salvation or there wouldn't have been all of the scriptural uh, warnings against it. But you can't lose your salvation. You don't lose your standing with God every time you sin. And if you do give an inroad of Satan, not through total renouncing and rebellion and rejection, but just through failure, human nature, sinning, then you draw on 1 John 1, 9 and you just simply confess that sin and say, Father, you were right, I'm wrong, I'm putting myself back in agreement, I humble myself, I turn from this, and as you resist the devil, he has to flee from you, and all of this cleansing and, and holiness that's in your spirit comes out into the flesh, and you, you are now free from any legal right that Satan has to come against you and hinder you. Amen? So again, I'm, I'm kind of answering questions. I'd rather just be going on and talking about all the positive things, but we've had so much religious teaching, I just felt like I needed to answer those things and explain it. And I know that this is a battle that has raged for 2,000 years, and I probably didn't satisfy everybody or anybody. But you know what? That's what I think anyway, and I've just sharing with you what God has shown me. And I am absolutely secure. I believe in the security of the believer. I really am. I am secure. But I'm not stupid. I am not going to go out and start living in sin because God loves me and isn't imputing sin against me. And I'm not going to flirt with it because it's deadly and Satan is trying to destroy me. And I'm not going to give him that inroad into my life. So I am not encouraging sin. There's a lot of people that interpret my teaching on grace as I encourage sin. And yet again, I throw out that I, I just challenge you. I dare you to live as holy as I am. Not that I am the standard or the perfect model, but I can guarantee you I live as holy as most people. Most pe probably more holy than most people. I am not preaching grace to encourage sin. Amen? If you truly understand the grace of God, It'll cause you to live a holy life and live a separated life. But at the same time, we don't need to be foolish and we don't need to go out and flirt with sin and just think that you can go live in sin. I've got some friends that I don't understand, but they are out living in sin and they're doing things that I guarantee you, it's opening up a door to the devil and I just don't have any confidence in them. I wouldn't recommend them the way I recommend Pastor Bob Nichols. You know, God loves Bob because of who he is in the spirit, because he has faith in the Lord. And it's because of who he is in the spirit that Bob has prospered. But over 50-something years of ministry, and I think it's 45 years of pastoring this church, Bob has built integrity. 
And Bob operates with tremendous integrity and he has made decisions and he has separated himself and he does things in a way that, you know what, I have confidence in Bob Nichols. You aren't going to read in the paper someday that Bob Nichols ran off with somebody else's wife and that he stole money. I have confidence in him because of what he's done out here in the flesh. But his spirit is as sanctified and perfected as anybody else's spirit. Or I could say anybody else's spirit is just as holy as his is through Jesus because it's all through Jesus that we have right standing. But he has developed integrity in his life and I have confidence in him because of the way that he has brought his soul and his body under control. And there's a lot of people out there that are born again, but you know what? I wouldn't give you a plug nickel for their integrity because of the way they're living. And I just think that that's stupid. You shouldn't live live that way. But God sees you in the spirit. You still have access to God, but you aren't only a spirit. You have a soul and a body and you need to glorify God in your spirit, soul, and body. You need to start living holy and seeking God. But you always need to remember that it's your spirit that has been born again and changed. God is a spirit. God is seeing you in the spirit. And if if you're receiving what I'm saying in the, in the attitude that I'm giving it in, then this should not encourage you to sin, but it should encourage you that when you do sin, God still loves you and God is bigger than your sin and you can run to God instead of from God and that God is not going to withdraw from you and, and mess up. Well, I tell you, that has just set me free. When I first started ministering, I thought that I had to be holy for God to use me. And so I made all kinds of promises. I swore I'd never preach without fasting two weeks before every time I preached. Did you know if I was still trying to keep up that, I'd be plumb gone by now. I minister sometimes 40 times a week. That's just hard to fast that much. And if I didn't do all of these things, then I thought, oh God, how could you use me? You know, I've come to realize now that God's never had anybody qualified working for him yet. And when I fail and when I haven't studied the word and when I haven't been kind the way that I should and I stand up here and my conscience starts condemning me, I've learned how to purge my conscience by the blood of Jesus so that I can serve the living God. And I've learned how to say, Father, it's not about me, it's about you. And even though I'm not the servant that I should be, you're the savior that you should be. And I'm not going to tell them how bad I am. I'm just going to tell them how good you are for loving somebody like me. Amen. And it has set me free. Let me give you one last story and I shall quit. Man, I should have quit already. Real quick. I was on my way to this uh, Bible study one time and I had, uh, I was pastoring a church in Pritchett, Colorado. This is where we saw the first person raised from the dead and people were coming from 150 miles away and people were having me pray for them from sunup to sundown. And I hadn't been studying the word. I hadn't been spending time praying because I was ministering to people so much. And so I just made a promise that I was going to spend that day fasting and praying and studying the word all day. Well, before I even woke up, I had somebody knocking on the door and they woke me up and they wanted prayer. So I started praying for people. I prayed, but I only prayed for people. I wasn't just fellowshipping with the Lord. And I didn't have any time to study the word because I had a steady stream of people coming by the house and I was preaching to them and sharing the word. And then a guy I'd been witnessing to for months came by and wanted to take me out to lunch, which this was just unusual. And I thought today could be his day to get born again. And so... I went out to lunch and since I didn't eat breakfast, I was hungry and I ate twice as much as I normally would. So I was going to this Bible study at night. I had broken every commitment I made to the Lord. I hadn't prayed. I didn't study the word and I ate twice as much as I normally did. And as I was driving to this Bible study, I felt so ungodly. And you know, the devil knows scripture. The devil will quote scripture to you. And I was thinking all liars will have their part in a lake of fire. Better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not pray. And I was driving over there and I was by myself and I was crying and saying, Oh God, I failed you. Oh God, how could you ever use somebody like me? And as I got closer, I said, God, if you won't do it for me, just do it because of the people. Don't make, don't punish the people because of how bad I've been. And I still didn't feel any peace. I didn't feel any faith. And so I just kept praying and 
Finally, I said, God, just do it because of who Jesus is. And as soon as I said that, the Lord said, who did you think I was going to do it because of? (laughs) And you know what? I had fallen back into thinking that God, because I fast and because I pray, now you'll be able to use me. God's never used anybody because they deserve it. You have to be strong in the grace that's in the Lord Jesus. And you need to realize that, yes, you need to maintain integrity for your relationship with people and to keep Satan out of your life. But when it comes to your relationship with God, it's only based on who you are in Jesus. It's not based on your goodness. Well, that's good preaching. <laughs>